The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The writer's job is to tell the truth, Ernest Hemingway once said. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, he said that when he was having trouble writing, quote, I would stand and look out over the roofs of Paris and think, do not worry. You have always written before, and you will write now. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence, and then go on from there. It was easy then, because there was always one true sentence that I knew, or had seen, or had heard someone say. End quote. Literary biographer Richard Bradford took a deep dive into Hemingway's life, his works, his private papers, his letters. Professor Bradford found something very different from this version of Hemingway as a passionate devotee of the truth. In fact, as Professor Martin Stannard said, quote, "...vivid and pugnacious, like its subject." This book addresses head-on the topic most of Hemingway's biographers have found embarrassing. His lying. So which is it? Was Hemingway the one true source of truth? Or an egomaniac who deceived others to the point where he himself perhaps no longer recognized what was true and what was fiction? We'll be joined by Richard Bradford, author of The Man Who Wasn't There, A Life of Ernest Hemingway, to see if we can find some truth among the fiction, some reality among the fantasy, some human among the myth. And if we can't, what does that mean for us as readers or fans or people interested in books and writers and legends and heroes. That's all coming up today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. That's my name. That's who I am. I'm trying to tell you all as much truth as possible. Isn't that what we do? Well, not everyone tells the truth all the time, but for Hemingway, it was a credo. On the one hand, fiction, which creates worlds of fantasy, it's untrue by definition. On the other hand, Hemingway wants to get at the truth, or at least he tells us he does. His famous style full of nouns and verbs and terseness has been lauded far and wide as a true, honest form of writing. Frederick J. Hoffman said Hemingway's aesthetic of simplicity involved a, quote, basic struggle for absolute accuracy in making words correspond to experience, 
end quote. Critic William Barrett said of Hemingway, style was a moral act, a desperate struggle for moral probity amid the confusions of the world and the slippery complexities of one's own nature. To set things down simple and right is to hold a standard of rightness against a deceiving world, end quote. Another critic has praised Hemingway for his short and simple sentence constructions with heavy use of parallelism, which convey the effect of control, terseness, and blunt honesty. More praise came for Hemingway's purged diction, which above all eschews the use of bookish, Latinate, or abstract words, and thus achieves the effect of being heard or spoken or transcribed from reality rather than appearing as a construct of the imagination, in brief, verisimilitude. Hemingway himself pointed us in this direction. Ornament is not true. He said adjectives are suspicious and adverbs, well, those might as well be straight-out lies. Nouns and verbs, stick to those. Stick to the simple words, convey the action plainly, and let those convey the emotional truth. He said, quote, if I started to write elaborately or like someone introducing or presenting something, I found that I could cut that scroll work or ornament out and throw it away and start with the first true, simple, declarative sentence I had written. I decided that I would write one story about each thing that I knew about. I was trying to do this all the time I was writing, and it was good and severe discipline. End quote. He also said this about writing fiction. Quote, the real thing was contriving the sequence of motion and fact which made the emotion and which would be valid in a year or ten years or with luck, and if you stated it purely enough, always. End quote. He claimed that this came from his journalistic background. He said, quote, In writing for a newspaper, you told what happened, and with one trick and another, you communicated the emotion to any account of something that has happened on that day. End quote. The trick. The trick. Did you catch that word? The trick. With one trick and another. And here's where we run into problems, because we know that Hemingway lied, not just a little, but a lot. He lied to make himself look better. He lied to make those around him look worse. He was a braggart and a boaster, and sometimes he lied for no seeming reason at all. He lied with cruelty. He lied with capriciousness. So what does it mean if he lies in his real life? When he sat down at the writing desk, he was convinced he needed to tell the truth. Wasn't he? But what if that's a lie, too? What if the liar was the real Hemingway? And his description of himself as someone devoted to writing true sentences is just something he made up. I'll confess I never really thought about it this way. I took his devotion to the truth as a writer, as one of the only things I could really count on with Hemingway. But why did I think that? Didn't I learn that I can't take his word for it when it comes to Scott Fitzgerald or Gertrude Stein or his personal exploits or most other things? Why should I believe him when it comes to his writing? What if his statements about the truth are the most untrue things he's said? Untrue and yet so believable that I swallowed them whole. 
What would that say about Hemingway that he told those lies? What would it say about me that I believed them? Hmm. What do we do with all this? Let's talk to biographer Richard Bradford and see where that takes us. We will have our conversation with him coming up. Oh, wait, before we get there, we have an email first. Haven't been doing as many emails. I'll just do one today. This one comes from Shia. You'll see why I'm reading this one in a moment. Hey, Jack, a fan of the show from India here. I am a BA literature student, and listening to you talk about books and authors has been the highlight of my life since quarantine started. I've been devouring books one after the other, and since none of my friends happen to be into literature, listening to you and Mike gives me a delightful sense of being in excellent company. I listen to your show before going to bed while having a cup of green tea, and sometimes in the evening as I watch the sunset. Your love for literature is contagious, and your podcast a divine treasure. I cherish it enormously, and my gratitude to you is infinite. I was wondering if you could do an episode on Daphne du Maurier, or maybe only about her book, Rebecca. I think it's a masterpiece, and would love to hear you talk about it in your sincerely charming and astonishingly eloquent way that I deeply admire and envy. Yours truly, Shia. Now, what a nice email. Daphne du Maurier would be something. I first came to her through Hitchcock, of course through Rebecca and the birds. But don't look now, that film. Oh, Nicholas Rogue, have you seen that? I'm not sure I could watch that movie again. That might be one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen with Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. So disturbing. I'm including The Shining in that. Don't look now gets... You know what? You know what films have disturbed me the most? Once I was in Scotland traveling by myself... And I saw straw dogs in Glasgow. Oh, my God. Did that scare the hell out of me when I saw I just watched it in the afternoon. I came out of the movie theater. It was dark. I was terrified. And once I was in India, in a little village in northern India, and this little restaurant had a movie night. They showed movies on a little TV, and I watched Taxi Driver there, and then I walked back on this deserted dirt road to my lodgings, and it was terrifying. That walk back, that was pretty disturbing, too. I mean, the idea that Travis Bickle was going to jump out at me in northern India was pretty remote, but when you're scared, you're scared. So, Daphne du Maurier is not on the calendar anytime soon, but you might hear something interesting if you listen to the end of this podcast. Listen to the very end, even after the surprise bonus question with Professor Bradford. Professor Richard Bradford, the biographer of Ernest Hemingway, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Richard Bradford, who is a professor at Ulster University and a visiting professor at the University of Avignon. Professor Bradford is also an accomplished literary biographer of 20th and 21st century authors, including Philip Larkin, Kingsley Amos, Martin Amos, and George Orwell. He's here today to talk about his new book, The Man Who Wasn't There, A Life of Ernest Hemingway. Professor Bradford, welcome to the History of Literature. Oh, hello. Well, thanks for hosting the program and having me on it. Okay, so I think the first question you probably get asked is why another book about Hemingway, but I actually think you've given us a clue in your title, The Man Who Wasn't There, where the common conception about Hemingway is that he was there in world wars, in Paris in the 20s, on African safaris, in Cuba, and bullfighting rings, and so on. What do you mean by a man who wasn't there? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, back to your first point, as you state, there are enormous number of uh, biographies on Orwell. Uh, there have been books about his brain, his boat, his eating habits, his drinking habits, and virtually everything else that you'd want to know or even not want to know about mm. him. Sorry to interrupt. I think you said Orwell, but I think you mean Hemingway. I'm sorry. I was yeah. just <laughs> talking about Orwell. Hemingway, um, the, 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 you know, he's been enormously well documented. Mm -hmm. So you'd think that there isn't much else that one would uh, really want to know. But the second part of your inquiry, the man who wasn't there, uh, I pinched it, of course, from um, a film. Mm. But right, the Coen I brothers. Meant, yeah. What, what I mean by it is that he was such a compulsive liar, he almost uh, lied himself out of existence. Mm -hmm. The truth about Hemingway, okay, we know more or less, where he was at certain times, where he was born, uh, where he did this, that, and so on and so on. But the actuality of what he was doing at these points, uh, the real truths, were largely fabrications mm. on his part, at least for his contemporaries. So to a large extent, for those who knew him or thought they knew him, as his friends, contemporaries, wives, lovers, and so on and so on, other writers, he he was somebody else. Hmm. Uh, he, figuratively speaking, wasn't there because he was elsewhere. He made himself up. And do you think that this is, maybe we're jumping ahead a little too far, but do you think this is uh, because he was a fiction writer and he was kind of fictionalizing himself and myth-making, or, or do, you, do you associate it with his fiction writing or with his celebrity? Well, I suppose... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, amateur, or otherwise, 
But um, the lying began before the writing. Mm. So one could say that he was he, he was a a young fantasist, which many people are, especially young men. Mm-hmm. And he made a lot of things up about what he'd done, particularly his uh, First World War service. Mm-hmm. And whether this became some element of his desire to be a fiction writer, one can only speculate. But there is there are certain parallels between his compulsive, obsessive lying and his use of his life as the basis for his fiction. Mm, right. With, yeah, with, with particular novels, which um, we can get on to later. I mean, uh, the most obvious is um, Across the River and Into the Trees, mm. which was based upon his obsession with a young Italian um, 17-year-old aristocrat who he turned into a fictional version of his a, a woman, a, a girl who adored a version of him in the novel, and it was a it was a it was a bizarre uh, fantasy, which like makes Nabokov's Lolita look like a sort of vicar's tea party. Mm, yeah. So, what sources? When you say he was lying from an early age, and you seem to have developed a, a different view or a, uh, have gone further in this direction than other biographers have gone. What sources were you looking at, and were any of them new or previously overlooked? Were there letters or accounts by others who knew him, or what was putting you onto the trail that Hemingway's uh, fabrications were more pronounced and more significant than had previously been attributed to him? Well, um, Carlos Baker, as you probably know, was his first biographer, Mm. his authorized biographer, if you like, and he knew him when he was still alive. He was already working on the biography when uh, Hemingway was still alive. And Baker also published the first volume of his letters, uh, which by now looks a very slight book, because Cambridge University Press are in the process of editing the complete letters Mm. from all of the documents that are stored in various American university archives, most of them in the JFK collection. Uh, the Cambridge collection only goes up so far to about the late 1920s. And I'd say it's going to take about another 15 years before it's finished. Mm. This is me taking a long way around the question. But it became evident to me that there was a hell of a lot about his life in these letters unpublished that we don't know. So I started going through the JFK archive, particularly the letters that uh, remain unpublished. And I began to discover an enormous amount of material that either his previous biographers had neglected to mention or more likely had deliberately overlooked because they didn't want to harm the reputation of their, uh, I suppose, adored topic, Mm, subject. Right. I think the latter, to be honest, because very few literary biographers write books about people they don't admire. So if they find something embarrassing or unpleasant, they usually cover it up. And I suspect that that's what's happened. I mean, it certainly was with Carlos Baker, because I know for a certain fact that Baker saw things which I later found 
and he delib deliberately left them out. Would you say that your interest is, would this be a fair way of characterizing it? I'm wondering if the previous biographers would look at the life and I think everyone knew Hemingway could be a bit of a bully and that he could be a bit of a, a braggart and that he would puff himself up and, and maybe exaggerate some things here and there. And you can even see that in his fiction sometimes. But it seems like most people have drawn a divide and have said, well, that might be how he was in real life, but, you know, we can admire the fiction and, and we can uh, kind of separate the two in a way. And you seem to be saying it's really hard to understand Hemingway the person or Hemingway the works without really reckoning with him as just a serial compulsive liar. Um, I think you're right, because if there were just a few cases in which he might have exaggerated certain aspects of his life for his friends, his wives, his family, whoever, then, okay, I mean, most many people do that. It's, uh, if you like, a characteristic of the human condition. We never always uh, tell the truth about what we've done and uh, who we are. But with Hemingway, from the age of about 19 onwards, until uh, the point at which alcohol and other things really eroded the boundaries for him between who he was and who he'd made up, he never stopped telling lies. Mm. I've never encountered in the history of literature a figure who was such an obsessive, compulsive liar. Mm. Right. We maybe need um, to look to the uh, political world for that. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I hope I'm not, I'm not insulting you or your political system, but I'm surprised that your present president isn't a fan of Hemingway in that respect. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I couldn't help but draw some parallels, but uh, because I want this uh, podcast episode to be evergreen, uh, we won't talk about the, the current election and, and what we're seeing now from uh, any of the candidates. But I was struck by just the, the narcissism and, and almost the, just getting back to Hemingway, there's a suggestion that it's, it's a little bit out of his control that he's he's lying even when he doesn't necessarily need to, or it's just a, almost like a, would you call it a, a disorder of some kind? As, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not a psychologist, and uh, I, I wouldn't know how to um, mm, right. name these peculiar compulsions uh, that seem to possess him throughout his life. But yes, he, it, it is almost as though he couldn't help himself. As you've probably seen, it, the, the, the most astonishing lies became evident when he was uh, seriously injured in the First World War, mm. when he was, he was working in the ambulance service. Yeah. The fact that he was seriously injured and his leg uh, was riddled in shrapnel, uh, we don't dispute that. It was, it was the case. I mean, you know, the, 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 the photographs of him uh, were well known with a stick and he was in hospital and so on and so on. <laughs> But it's almost blackly comic, whereby he tells in letters to friends and family how he has been awarded the most prominent Italian Medal of Honor, a medal from the French government, a medal from the British government. He'd been awarded none of these things, and he was writing about them at the time. He wasn't awarded any medals at all. Mm. 
What actually happened was that he met a minor aristocrat uh, who was serving in the Italian army called Nick Neroni, to whom he told lies about being awarded these medals. And it wasn't until 1921 when he met up with Nick Neroni and said he'd lost the medals or he hadn't been officially awarded them, that Neroni, who knew members of the government, had these medals sent over and had them pinned on him in Chicago. Whereas he'd sent letters to other people, his friends and family included, saying that there'd been a ceremony in the central square in Milan where the brother of the king of Italy had actually pinned the medals on his chest. Mm. He sounds like a nutcase, to be honest. You say that part of his self-deception seems to have been a way of dealing with a life that in some ways let him down. What were those disappointments? Do you do you view it as as something you could trace back to his family and the way they treated him or to other kinds of frustration or uh, feelings he had that he didn't measure up in some way? Um, I, I don't think he was particularly badly treated by his family um, in terms of them being a, I suppose, in British terms, reasonably well-off middle class and religious family who kept a hold on what their children did. They were fairly ordinary of that period in the early 20th century, but they, they, they didn't impose upon him a strict regime, although he did eventually grow to loathe particularly his mother and indeed his father, even though his father committed suicide uh, and and he officiated over the funeral and so on and so on. And I can't really explain why he seemed to hate his mother and father. He he didn't dislike his siblings. So I don't I don't I don't think that uh the way he became was really anything to do with his family life. Mm-hmm. Um he he was, I think, born as a fantasist. He wanted something. He wasn't really quite sure what it was. Mm. Many of his biographers seem to suggest that, uh, as with many other writers in his early teens, you know, he he had ambitions to become a uh, a literary great. But I don't think that he even thought about writing very much until he went to Paris. Mm. He met a few people who were connected with this cultural network, but he didn't do very much. And he was drawn to writing as a way of promoting his own image. And he seemed to shift between ideals that he cultivated about what he could become and the reality, which was far more disappointing. And throughout his life, he drifted between the two. Uh, his ambition to be one, his idea that he could become one, and the rather sad fact that he wasn't quite there. Even mm. when he got as far as the Nobel Prize, he seemed disappointed in it. Mm. Well, you paint what I think is kind of a devastating picture of Hemingway in the 20s, and I would say that the general picture that has been handed to us is that he's been, uh, outside of your book, is that he was surrounded by all of these literary figures, these brilliant minds like Wyndham Lewis and Gertrude Stein and James Joyce and Ford Maddox Ford. And even though they were all brilliant and and well-educated, the conception we have is that Hemingway was kind of a natural literary genius or artist. He he was this man of action who knew how to fish and knew how to to knew the best places to go to the bullfights, but he could also write poems and stories and he could get at the truth 
somehow through his, maybe just his his persona, allowed him to get at the truth in a way that surpassed those around him who were maybe a little too bookish or, or too cerebral. In our popular conception, the others around him recognize that about him and admire him for combining the the life skills and the artistry. But you portray him as something other than that in that circle. What did you find in terms of how the others in Paris in the 1920s thought of Hemingway? Well, I suppose it depends what you mean about getting at the truth. I wouldn't regard literature as going anywhere near the truth, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, Although some regard Hemingway as uh, epitomizing literature as a form of almost magical transparency. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. In terms of his position in Paris, when he met Sherwood Anderson, who fixed up uh, certain contacts with him, he knew he wanted to go to Paris, but he initially went to Paris as a journalist. Whether or not he expected journalism to support him while he cultivated a career as a creative writer-stroke novelist, we can never be sure, really because he eventually started writing short stories and ideas for novels. But when he really got the idea for this, we don't know. And he had the idea, uh, he had the conception of Paris as, um, because mostly because Sherwood uh, Anderson had told him about this, as an area of literary celebrity. Mm. He arrived as a sort of gatecrasher at the party, but he didn't really know what the party involved. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Gertrude Stein, Joyce, all of the rest of them who he met were, I suppose, at the forefront. The, the, they were the pioneering figures in modernism. Mm-hmm. But as far as I can gather, Hemingway had absolutely no idea what modernism involved. Right. I mean, when we look at some of his poems, which he wrote at the same time, they look almost like parodies of Stein's appallingly bad poems. Yeah. They weren't. They were just even worse. Yeah. <laughs> and you you note that Stein made changes to his works, ed, made edits to his stories, and Hemingway didn't even really seem to understand uh, why she made them or, or what the improvement was uh, that she had uh, sort of blessed his yeah. stories with in a way. She had improved them, but he didn't understand why why those were improvements. Well, I think that's why he came to loathe her eventually, because mm-hmm. um, he, he felt that, uh, I mean, first of all, he adored her because clearly she was one of the, you know, hers was the major salon where everyone from Picasso to Joyce and through and Ezra Pound, were, many of them were associated either directly or indirectly with it. So he became um, a sort of junior member. He adored Stein initially, but he, he came to loathe her because he began to realize that she was pretty bad as a writer. Mm. And she tainted his work with her incompetence. Mm. Um, And to a large extent, this is why he came to loathe, not because they were bad writers, quite the opposite. This is why he came to loathe uh, Dos Passos and Fitzgerald as well. Mm. Because at various points, and again, this is disclosed only in the unpublished correspondence in the JFK archive, they also, um, in his best interest, because they were doing this genuinely, made suggestions on how he might improve uh, The Sun Also Rises and and a few other things. 
but he resented the fact yeah. that they thought they could do something better than the thing that he'd produced. He then gradually, systematically, developed a form of loathing for each of them, yeah. which, turned, which, which, turned, which turned into utter contempt, and in one case, verged upon murder. Ah, which case was that? Dos Passos. Oh, right. Because when he was in Spain during the Civil War, Dos Passos' closest friend, Jose Robles, was captured by the Russian communists. There was a uh, behind-the-door show, tri- show trial because the communists held a, a key areas of Madrid. And Robles uh, was shot secretly in the backyard of the hotel. Hemingway knew all about this because he enjoyed being part of the communist in-crowd because they were the most powerful elements of uh, the anti-Franco various groups. And he teased Dos Passos with information about Robles, how the trial was going, whether he got out or not, when in truth he knew that Robles had already been shot. And he saved the information about the fact that he'd already been shot till the last minute and enjoyed telling him about it. Hmm. He was, apart from being a liar, he was evil as well. Right. Well, that's that was one of the questions that I had. Uh, before reading your book, I had the, the sense that Hemingway had been unfair and unkind to Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas and Sherwood Anderson and Ford Maddox Ford. It was just a pattern with him, his wives and his children. But I was wondering if there was anything you discovered that shocked you of lies that you thought even Hemingway would not have been capable of or cruelty that seemed unreasonable even for him. It sounds like that's one example. Were there any others? Probably the way he tormented in letters to various other people, including her mother, Martha Gellhorn. Mm, yeah. I mean, it, there are parallels here between the way he cultivated a loathing for Dos Passos and Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. Because it was partly, in, in each case, the sense in which he felt that he disliked people who might potentially be his equal or even worse, his superior. Yeah. Gellhorn was the only woman with whom he had a relationship who was intellectually and in literary terms at least his equal, mm-hmm. if not his superior. And he began to loathe her also for that. And some of the letters he wrote about her to various people, including her mother, involved lies about what she'd done and the way she behaved and the way she lived that included unspeakable accusations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that was shocking as well because how he could go from, okay, the the marriage fell to pieces for lots of reasons, but how he could go from this almost magical partnership between them where they traveled through various parts of Spain and China and God knows what. And then he could turn into someone who uh, hated her quite so much. It is quite shocking. Mm. And this might seem a little less significant much earlier than that in the early 1920s when he was uh, in France mainly in Paris, but traveling in France as well, he met a couple called Charles, Chard and Olive Smith. They were very typically um, Americans during the Grand Tour. They were well off. Chard Smith had been to Harvard and Yale. 
they had rented a uh, chateau uh, in northern Provence and they'd entertained the Hemingways there for a while because he was, he, he, this was the point at which he was already beginning to make a reputation for himself in Paris. Mm. And very similar to the way in which he destroyed virtually all of his literary fellow travellers in The Sun Also Rises, he did this to the Smiths. He wrote a short story in 1924 called Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And Gridler decided that when it eventually came out in the collection, change the title. Otherwise, you know, um, there might be legal charges. Because, so it, now it's called Mr. and Mrs. Elliot. Mm-hmm. But it is a biographical story about Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And Charles and Ollie Smith had tried for years to have a child and failed. And it was one of the really sad parts of their life. And Mr. and Mrs. Smith, in the short story, all it concentrates on in a very lurid, prurient way, is Mr. Smith's inability to procreate. Mm. And it is quite an appalling act of, well, I call it vengeance, but it isn't really vengeance because they've done nothing terrible to him. Yeah, It's just an outrageous act of malice, really. Right. Okay, well, this is pointing me to my next set of questions, but let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with Richard Bradford, who's written a new biography of Ernest Hemingway. So we're back. Ernest Hemingway did not have a very happy ending. Do you trace anything in Hemingway's hospitalization and suicide back to his earlier life? Does it? He seems to have really suffered from these delusional tendencies uh, that at the end they sort of finally overcame him. But is this is this connected, or is just is that more of a thematic or or ironic coincidence? Uh, well, I, I, things that had begun with him as a young, uh, self-delusional fantasist as early as the 1920s simply got worse. And by the time, uh, that he was at the, I suppose you could call it the peak of his career when, um, he received the Nobel Prize in the 1950s, mm-hmm. um, as an individual, emotionally and psychologically, he was in the depths. And this, I don't think it was due entirely to his psychological condition, uh, except that he supplemented this with more and more and more alcohol. Mm, right. Um, he was drunk all day long. Yeah. And, you know, you, you don't need a degree in psychology to realize that if you're a bit mentally unbalanced, drinking vast amounts of spirits all day long doesn't do you any good, yeah. either uh, mentally or physically. And I think that's why, essentially, he was hospitalized and uh, eventually he committed suicide. Yeah. He couldn't take his own presence anymore. Yeah. Ah. So I want to ask you about A Movable Feast, 
which has always uh, seemed to have on display some of these worst lying qualities. He he clearly paints himself in a flattering light, and he's extremely unkind to others. And as you've noted, it, it seems to be especially bad when it's someone who has helped him along the way. He seems to go out of his way to be unkind to the people who were helpful to him. And there's times when I read that book and I think, oh, he's a, he's a liar, he's a bully. And yet it's one of my favorite books of his. And my wife, for example, who wouldn't read a Hemingway novel if you paid her money, but she tolerates uh, The Sun Also Rises and she actually likes A Movable Feast. And there's passages in there that are warm and tender and we see a kind of vulnerability in Hemingway, which we also see in The Sun Also Rises and in some of his short stories. And your book has made me think, is the the vulnerability a con job to make us like him? Because I think a lot of readers thought of that as the true Hemingway, that you can overlook the bluster because, you know, deep down he's got this sensitive side or underneath there's this kind of tenderness or this this artistic sense and this vulnerability. Do you think that was genuine or do you think he knew that putting that in would make his works play well with his literary audience? I, I don't think that he deliberately or calculatedly played one side of himself against the other because the time... Yeah. By the time he wrote a, vol- uh, a movable feast, he was emotionally and mentally erratic. So he was shifting between those parts of himself that I suppose in his past, uh, his contemporaries, his friends, his women would have seen as bearable. Mm-hmm. And those parts of himself that he knew to himself, though he very rarely disclosed, were quite disgraceful. But mm-hmm. he wasn't actually able to balance the two. By the time that he wrote it, I mean, it was, it was probably, you could probably call it the most honest form of stream of consciousness. Although, you know, it is written in sentences. Mm-hmm. It's not like the final chapter of Joyce's Ulysses. But at the same time, it shifts so erratically between moments of transparency and, as you put it, almost tenderness and decency towards aggressive lying and unpleasantness and misrepresentation that you don't know when it's going to shift from one to the other. And Mm -hmm. that was his state of mind when he wrote it. Mm. He didn't plan it. It's just an accurate representation of his mental condition. Yeah. He was all over the place. You can spot bits of it that you think, oh, yes, he was all right at the time, and then other parts. And again, you know, particularly with Stein and Topless, where he seems to be taking a bizarre form of revenge, telling those weird stories about yeah. when he went to the flat. And right, right. It's just sort of fascinating. So I found the book fascinating, and I'm wondering, I have a feeling that some readers will read it and say, yes, this confirms what I suspected about him, and others will read it and say, I can't read this, it undermines my hero. Did you have that in mind when you wrote the book, that there would be people who were passionate on both sides and and would uh, respond to your book in that context? No, no. I mean, I, I, I didn't set out initially to destroy the represent uh, the, the repu- reputation of Hemingway as an in- individual and as a writer before I began writing it. Although I must confess, I never liked him very much, but I was interested in him. Mm-hmm. I, I never really enjoyed his novels particularly. And I suppose for that reason, I was fascinated by uh, what inspired them. And 
When I started to read the unpublished material, which, as I say, many of his previous biographers had accidentally or probably deliberately overlooked, I began to get a picture of what this individual was, is, really like. So I didn't set out to do a hatchet job on Hemingway. All I did was to disclose the truth mm. that was revealed to me through the JFK archive. Ultimately, do you think for readers this is uh, a cautionary tale about writing, about biography, about myth-making? And, I mean, for me, knowing the truth about Hemingway makes his, his works and his life richer in some sense. But I'm not sure that everyone would agree with that. Do you have a, an idea for what you want readers to experience when they come away from your book? Well, I suppose to digress, though not that much from your inquiry, um, I mean, I, I as, as you said in a very decent and complimentary manner at the beginning, I'm, I'm essentially a literary biographer. And literary biography is thought of as the pariah of uh, both literary writing and literary criticism, mm. in that writers don't like <laughs> biographers, right. uh, academics don't like literary biography, and it's thought of as the sort of, how can one put it, the worst form of writing about literature. But at the same time, it's the most popular form of writing yeah. about literature outside academia. Yeah. And I think it's really important because you can say, as most academics do, concentrate on the text, concentrate on the artwork. Don't bother about, you know, these amateur ideas about, well, did he really think like that? blah, 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 blah. I think if you find out what's been going on behind the words that went onto the page in, say, The Sun Also Rises and Across the River Into the Trees, it doesn't change the words that went onto the page, but it makes you think about them differently. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it reduces their significance as art, but it must change your perception of the text in yeah. some way. Right. You can't, you can't help. You can't help that. Right. It's all. It's all. It's almost as though Hemingway comes out behind from behind the pages, and you see him, and think about what was going on in his head and in his mind, uh, and, and in his life, and inevitably you start thinking differently about the words on the page. Yeah. I'll give you an example of that. I was always struck when I read uh, his stories about bullfighting how. He would he would talk about bullfighters who would look to look at Hemingway and their eyes would meet and they would would gaze into each other's eyes and he would say that they had this deep understanding and they really knew what it was about and and that it was a you could be an aficionado and all of that and when I read that as a as a young person I really wanted to know is this real like was Hemingway walking through life having this kind of encounter with people or is this something he's kind of putting into the story to make him make himself sound like uh almost like a, a superhuman figure and whichever of those is true they're both interesting. They both make the work interesting. I mean, if he's if that's a genuine experience, I'm kind of interested in that to know how a, a person like that went through life. And when I read the work, I, I think, oh, wouldn't that be interesting if people recognized me in that way? But it's kind of interesting, too, to think that Hemingway wanted that to be his ideal and that if someone is sitting down and, and facing a, a blank page in the typewriter, 
that they want to turn themselves into this kind of a, a figure. And in some ways, he actually was successful in creating that myth about himself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think a literary biography, although there's a lot of speculation inevitably, you can't know everything about the life of the author. Uh, it's foolish to think that you can, from the various fragments and unpublished material and anecdotes and speculation, rebuild a dead individual. Of course you can't. But you can come close to getting a portrait of what they were really like. And if you succeed as well as you can in doing that and place that figure alongside the books that people enjoy, it does something else to the book, I think. Mm. Right. Okay. I have one last question. It's a surprise bonus question for you. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. You are a young American from Oak Park, Illinois, who wants nothing, okay. who wants nothing more than to be a famous author. At a, at a Parisian cafe, you drink some excellent coffee and suddenly see life with great clarity. Your future stretches out before you. You can achieve everything you want, fame, literary success, a Nobel Prize for literature, but the cost will be immense personal struggles. You'll, you'll be a jerk to everyone you know, and you'll always have in the back of your mind a feeling that you're a liar and a fraud, that you've hurt people close to you, and you'll be insecure about those weaknesses, and ultimately you'll fall into a state of despair. Do you go down that road or do you choose to take another path? You mean if I were in that position? Yeah. Would you take... Well, I'd go down that, I'd go down that road. You would? I've got nothing against him. <laughs> I don't dislike him. I just think he's... <laughs> but would you I have... Just... <laughs> I suppose there's a, there's a degree of envy as well. Yeah. It? But would you in have the... wanted to be him even with all of the... Even knowing he had all those inner demons and that he, it must have been kind of tough to be him, knowing that he was lying all the time and, and couldn't be close to anyone near him and emotionally well, he wasn't available. Well, and, well, let's put it this way. I won't give you my exact age, but I'd be dead by now. Mm, so you, you mean you're older than Hemingway was when he died? Yeah. Yeah. And you would take the, the Nobel Prize and the fame and the literary success. That would be uh, enticing enough. I'm afraid so, yeah. <laughs> we probably all would if we're honest with ourselves. Uh, I, okay. I believe so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Professor Bradford, thank you so much for joining me today on the History yeah, of Literature. May, oh. may I add, sure. may I add uh, just a self-promotional point? My next book is out in January, and it's a new life on her centenary of Patricia Highsmith. Oh, right. Yes. You, uh, I am aware of that. And I've actually, I think I've actually started to read that book as well. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to have you come back and talk about her, talk about a fascinating life. There is a oh, lot really? in there yeah. that I did not, <laughs> that I had no, I mean, I knew she was a little strange. I knew she had some, some strange proclivities, but there are things in there that just blew my mind. In many ways, she's as strange as Hemingway, but in a different way. Yeah. Okay, well, if, if you'll come back, we will do definitely do an episode on her. Uh, Professor Bradford, thank you so much for I joining me you. today on the History of Literature. Thank you. Mm, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Did you hear that, Shia? 
Patricia Highsmith, not exactly Daphne du Maurier, but her American cousin who is similarly odd and whose work is similarly powerful. A psychological thriller. We'll have those coming up. We'll have Professor Bradford back. We'll talk all about Patricia Highsmith. My thanks to Richard Bradford today for joining me. His book is called The Man Who Wasn't There, A Life of Ernest Hemingway. What a fascinating portrait of a literary giant. His reputation, Hemingway's reputation, is becoming almost more interesting than his works. I still say one should read A Movable Feast and The Sun Also Rises and maybe a dozen or so of his best short stories, maybe A Farewell to Arms, and if that isn't enough, you can go ahead and read The Old Man in the Sea and For Whom the Bell Tolls and maybe Death in the Afternoon. Okay, you've read plenty by now. But what do you make of him? What do you make of him after you read Professor Bradford's biography? You have to reckon with the lying, not just the bullying and the boasting. We've known about that for a while. But the central question, are the books true in some sense? I mean, I know they're fiction. You know what I mean. Do they say accurate things about life and human beings? Or are they just part of the con? Have you been taken in? Have others? Does it matter? How do you feel about that? Those are all great questions. That's just part of the fun here at the History of Literature. Sometimes we find ourselves on solid ground. Sometimes we find ourselves falling into the abyss. (laughs) That's not exactly great... (laughs) Great for attracting listeners, I suppose. Not everyone wants to fall into the abyss just for kicks. But what can I do? I'm not the one who lied my head off and wrote ten books and dominated the 20th century with my reputation and my prose style. I'm just here delivering the news or the myth or whatever it is. Delivering the whatever. Our whatever. Who art in whatever. Hallowed be thy whatever. Thy whatever come, thy whatever be done, on whatever as it is in whatever. We are part of LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate Network, www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Universe.